tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. And there is Taliban checkpoints like every one click or half click in inside the city even early in the morning. It's uh, five quarter to six in the morning here. Hopefully uh, I, will, I will make it inside the airport today. Uh, on the way getting there, a lot, we see a lot of Taliban like you know, a lot of people going back and forth and people were coming like from all over the country. They had gotten the word that the United States Armed Forces are evacuating people. What the digital camera has allowed us to do was to open up to photographers this whole new field of shooting when the sun goes down. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. August 30th marks one year since the United States evacuated from Afghanistan. When the Taliban took control, a former combat interpreter and his family were among the tens of thousands of Afghan citizens who made the harrowing journey out of the country. Amin Fakiri and his family came to the United States. Fakiri was determined to start life over here in Rhode Island because of friendships he had in the Ocean State. Fakiri sat down with senior producer Justin Kenny last January and shared his family's dramatic escape. My name is Amin Fakiri. Uh, I am from Afghanistan. The first of about 250 Afghan refugees have made it to Rhode Island. Amin Fakuri and his family landed at TF Green Airport Saturday night. I had to leave because I, wor I was worried for my life and for my children's life. I was worried that the Taliban would harass us and they would harm us. I was scared for my life. I worked for the U.S. government in Afghanistan as an interpreter. I work with soldiers, I work with Afghan soldiers, I work with the United States Armed Forces. Shoot him! Shoot him! Shoot him! Alright guys, got a broken ammo, okay? Taliban forces entered the heart of the Afghan capital, Kabul, today, the culmination of a rapid advance and retaking of control almost exactly two decades after they were ousted from power. Now, the Taliban are out in full force. They took over the presidential palace. Afghanistan's president fled the country. The country went down and uh, the government was overthrown and uh, um, over 100,000 Afghan soldiers had died and you know, uh, everybody from their families had, had lost their loved ones. The U.S. military gave a lot of sacrifices. They, they built this country in the last 20 years. It, they, they spent tr trillions of dollars. I blame the politicians. I blame the people in power. I, I blame people in power all over the world. It took a long time for me to get to uh, Rhode Island. So it was a long journey, it wasn't easy. I had to go through a lot of chaotic situations and a lot of upsetting moments, time. They walked for nine hours, uh, just my kids with a suitcase. 
my six-year-old, four-year-old, eight-year-old, and ten-year-old, and my spouse. We are about to reach Kabul. My kids are happy here. Uh, they will have a safe life in Kabul for a few days. And uh, the Taliban were dominating. They were letting people know that we are here and uh, we are the government now. They were shooting all over the place. They were firing, there were fires, uh, you know, machine gun fires, artillery fires all over the city. My brother, he was at the airport. He called me and he said, early in the morning, leave your house, you know, find a cab from the evening time and then have the cab come pick you up. This is uh, Amin. We have left for the airport. All my kids are here with me. Um, so we are making our way to the airport. Uh, let's let's give it a try. See if we can get in. There are some guys, the OGA guys, the Afghan counterpart uh, with the Marines. Uh, some of my friends are there. I'm in contact with them. So hopefully those guys will get me in. Uh, and there is Taliban checkpoints, like every one click or half click, in inside the city, even early in the morning. It's uh, five quarter to six in the morning here. So um, hopefully uh, I will I will make it inside the airport today. On the way getting there, a lot, we see a lot of Taliban, like, you know, a lot of people going back and forth, and people were coming, like, from all over the country. They had gotten the word that the United States Arab forces are evacuating people. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport, desperate to get on planes and leave the country at any cost. We saw everything went down, you know, and my kids witnessed like shots fired, my kids witnessed like people being being shot outside when we were getting inside. It was not easy. I mean, people were just literally shooting like like every every second. I'm out here inside the airport. There is like people are on the runway uh, going all around the place. Um, these big airplanes are here. Um, the Marines are inside the wire. They have put a sea wire around, so I'm going in to uh, nearby a Marine to uh, talk to him. Let's see if he talks to me. We got out of C-130 and it was crowded. And the soldiers, the Marines, they were doing a great job. They were respecting people. They were giving water and food to people on the plane. The mood was sad, people were not talking to each other, and uh, they were just there, I mean, they were just breathing. Who would want to leave their country in, in such a chaotic way? We were feeling fantastic. I mean, we were warmly welcome. Um, everybody came to the airport uh, from, you know, the news and uh, my friends. So it felt great. It felt like we have arrived to our, uh, you know, last destination. So far, Rhode Island has been amazing. People have 
treated me with, with respect and uh, people have been so generous. I'm being hosted by a very generous and a very kind family. They have given me everything uh, my kids need and everything I need. So it's been very positive. My kids, uh, they were nervous and, uh, you know, they said what's going to happen and what's going to be there. So they were, they were always, you know, expecting good things. So I said, this is the United States. This is the land of the free. So people are going to love you guys. And they're very happy now. I mean, they're growing up and I see them grow up and uh, I see them cooperate with people on daily basis. They're, you know, they, they're getting to learn English and uh, it's just, it's been amazing for them. Here in Rhode Island, I work for the Bremer Law and Associates. The office is helping Afghans with humanitarian parole visa status. And I am very happy I got that job because I'm still getting to work with my people who have applied. I'm trying to talk to them through emails and WhatsApp, uh, get their documents, process their documents for humanitarian parole so they could come to uh, safety in the United States. I'm all about helping the community now. I'm all about being a role model to other people. I'm trying to advocate for the refugee life in Rhode Island, not just for Afghan refugees, but for refugees from all over the world. I would like to extend my gratitude to all the resettlement agencies operating in the United States for helping me and my people, the Afghan refugees, who left the country in a very traumatic way. And uh, I want to thank the US military for taking care of my people. I'm very grateful and I'm very appreciative of everything. Fakiri's wife did not appear in our story over fears for her family's safety in Afghanistan. The former translator is now the proud owner of a store here in Providence and all three of his school-aged children are fluent in English. We now turn to a story about some of the country's most iconic beacons, lighthouses. For centuries, they've guided ships in and out of harbors, warning of shallow waters and rocky coasts. For several years now, a photographer in North Kingstown has turned his camera on lighthouses up and down the East Coast. As we first reported last September, while countless photos have been taken of these majestic, often life-saving pillars of light during the day, he takes the images long after the sun has gone down. If you think of a lighthouse, it does its work at night, primarily. To not have that recorded in history is a shame. David Zapatko has been recording history for more than three decades. He's an award-winning videographer, but his biggest project yet has him picking up his still camera. And I didn't realize that this was a project till I was 15 or 20 lighthouses in. And that's when I was doing more research on more lighthouses, realizing, wow, there's no pictures of this lighthouse. Zapatka is the president of the Friends of Plum Beach Lighthouse in North Kingstown. He's long been mesmerized by lighthouses, not just by how they look, but by their history. But there are so many others with these great stories behind them. Since 2013, he's photographed more than 175 lighthouses in the United States, including many on the eastern seaboard. Oh, we got stars. That's a good thing. His goal? To capture every working lighthouse around the country at night. 
The idea came to him while he was out boating with his wife on Narragansett Bay. So we're anchored off Dutch Island and I said to my wife, wouldn't it be cool to see if I can get shots of the Dutch Island Lighthouse at night under the stars? Zapatka says it's a photography project that hasn't been done before. What the digital camera has allowed us to do was to open up to photographers this whole new field of shooting when the sun goes down. So these are the slick ones. They're not too bad because they're the tide is on the way in, so they're a little bit dry. What you can't see in Zapatka's photos are the great lengths he goes to in order to capture these images. It's not a stretch to say you're putting your life at risk on some of these shoots. Early on, I, I realized that it's, it's dangerous at night. Almost there. A little bit further out, then we get the reflection. That's always the bonus. Zapatka often wades knee-deep into water to take a photo. On the night we went with him, it was this one, the Ned's Point Lighthouse in Massachusetts. Other lighthouses are only accessible by boat. To get an image like this, Zapatka put his 20-foot tripod in the water. So I can launch it off a boat, stick it down in the water, and get a shot of the lighthouse from the water that you couldn't normally get because your camera has to be completely steady for 20 seconds during new moon phase. Arriving at night to these lighthouses is not for the faint of heart. Zapatka and his friend Sean found that out on a trip to Thatcher Island to capture twin lighthouses. We're like right by the lighthouses. They're like right there. It's like, there they are. Let's, let's keep going. Let's shoot it. So we tie the boat off at a mooring and now we're facing into the wind and now waves are coming over the bow of my 15-foot Boston Whaler. And it's all hell's breaking loose. The water's coming over, it's filling the back of the boat. We're getting hit by wind. I'm at the bow of the boat, like getting slammed. And I'm like, you know what, Sean, we gotta go. And he, and he was like, Dave, you know, I'm with you, man. Never one to give up, he came back another night and captured the twins in all their glory. Behind every photo are a host of safety measures, from a helmet with a headlamp to a personal radio beacon in the event of an emergency. Nope, that's slick. <laughs> Just when you think you're done. Even though he puts himself in some precarious situations, Zapatka says he is not a reckless risk taker. But the thrill is I'm creating this history right in front of my eyes that no one's ever done before and it's all going to be available through the United States Lighthouse Society. Whether it's the Borden Flats Lighthouse in Massachusetts or Sankety Head Lighthouse in Nantucket, photographing a lighthouse at night requires more than a skilled photographer and a good camera. Zapatka times his photo shoots around the lunar calendar. So now, here's what you need. New moon, or close to it, low tide, slack tide, which means the tide is stopped, um, and no clouds. So Anything else? So why do you think it's taken me eight years to do only 175 lighthouses, roughly? Because it, some of those conditions are so specific that it's, you have to be patient to get that shot. And when it comes to patience, Zapatka has plenty of it. When I first started, I was self-teaching myself night photography 
And I knew there was a thing called light painting. We just use a flashlight. So if you show up at Beaver Tail Lighthouse and it's dark and it's night, you can light the lighthouse just with using a flashlight by waving it back and forth. And I did that originally at, at Beaver Tail. He had already shot about a dozen lighthouses when he realized he could also use his battery-powered television lights. I use those dimmed down to almost nothing. You could barely read by these lights, but over the, the, the sensitivity and the long exposure that I've created within the camera sensor, that light goes a long way. Your eyes are not deceiving you. Still, don't expect this starry sky to look quite like this in person. The camera sees more than, than our eyes can see. So when you're standing here looking at Beavertail Lighthouse in the middle of the night, the Milky Way is there and you can barely see it with your eyes, but the camera can see it better than you can because it's seeing in this long exposure. Zapatka's photography collection was published in his first book in 2017, Stars and Lights, Darkest of Dark Nights. Last year, he released the sequel, Portraits from the Dark. The project has been adopted by the United States Lighthouse Society and will live in their archives. Well, you're hoping to take this RV to Michigan, to Florida, Ohio, all over the country. Yeah, farther and farther away. Zapatka has driven up and down the East Coast in this RV, photographing lighthouses. But he says the effects of climate change with rising tides present a real and present danger. The work you're doing is really a race against time. Totally. In many, on many different levels. The level, and talk about levels, the levels of the Great Lakes last year were higher than they've ever been. They're down again this year, but if it gets higher again, there are several lighthouses that are, that are threatened because the foundations will just start crumbling and potentially those lighthouses could just fall into the lake. It's with that sense of urgency that Zapatka approaches his work. To me, it is called out and said, this needs to be done. And so I guess I'm the person to do it. To date, Zapatka has photographed more than 190 lighthouses. He recently photographed a lighthouse off of Staten Island. Finally tonight, we revisit a young maestro who is taking up the baton once again this season for the Summer Pops. Troy Quinn is a conductor with a surprising resume. Meet the music man with Rhode Island roots. first time I ever heard the Rhode Island Philharmonic, I was 18, 17 or 18 years old. That was actually the first orchestra I ever heard live. I just thought it was such a visceral force and it, it caught my attention and I really, you know, had aspirations to actually be a conductor from that moment on and saying it would be great to come back here actually one day and conduct. That inspirational moment has taken Troy Quinn full circle. The Connecticut native and 2005 graduate of Providence College is this year's conductor of the Rhode Island Philharmonic's Summer Pops. 
he's leading some of the very professors who were once his music teachers. In this major role reversal, it's a delicate balance of the baton to earn their respect. I'm not telling them what to do or above them. Certainly, we have to have one opinion, otherwise we'd have 80 dissenting opinions on how things should go or the tempo. My philosophy has always been to be energetic and let the music speak through me. And the only way I can do that is for other folks to be inspired enough to play their best. Because I don't make a sound. The conductor doesn't make a sound. <laughs> so I'm more like, less like a traffic cop and more like uh, hopefully a musical spiritual guru where we're just leading everybody mm -hmm. to the end result and hopefully people come on board with that. It's a privilege for me actually to be with these great musicians that I looked up to my whole career you know and so that's special for me to then be making music with them as an equal. Equal and ironic, Quinn's path to the podium was anything but typical. Well, you know, it's a very funny story. Actually, the well-kept secret, Pamela, is I didn't even read music until I got to college. Pretty late by really? most you, standards. You did not read music? No, nope, I did not even know what the notes were. I was just... Uh, I, I, I learned by rote and by ear. You know, I was singing in choirs, but I didn't know how to read. You didn't play an instrument? I did not, nope. But Quinn says he was able to tap into other talents. I had a lot of ground to make up, but at the same time I was focused and determined enough. And I knew I had the ear and the mentality and the mind and these humble gifts. I just didn't know how to use them yet. And so that's where these mentors and teachers really developed my career. And, and, and I have the drive to do it, you know, because for me it's as important as the air we breathe. You know, I, I, it's not a job, it's a vocation. As a PC student, Quinn majored in vocals and minored in theater. He learned to play piano along the way, eventually earning a doctorate in conducting. of Quinn's quest to become a conductor, he has a number of stage and screen credits to his name. The Pops rendition of Hollywood movie themes is a wink to Quinn's career. Is it true that you were the stand-in for actor Shia LaBeouf in Indiana Jones movie? I was. That's a true rumor. Um, <laughs> it has nothing to do with music, but that was my five minutes of, of Hollywood fame. But it was really incredible, and I had a chance to actually work, I will say, for a minute with Harrison Ford on a motorcycle after this crash scene in the movie where, for whatever reason, Shia wasn't ready yet to come up. And it was so intense. I remember when we were doing this scene for a minute, you know, when, they, when Spielberg's yelling action and, and Harrison went into character. He was so intense, I almost couldn't look at him, actually, because he was, he was what I would say is when I, what I try to epitomize when I'm in the concert hall, you know, when you're in that sort the of zone. zone, exactly. And it was, uh, it was a little bit intimidating, but fun nonetheless. Another fun yet surreal moment, Quinn says, was performing on tour with the Rolling Stones. It had to be a rush. It really was. You got an idea of what it would be like to be a rock star with people throwing things on the stage and going wild. But, you know, it's a different world from... Brahms and Rachmaninoff and Beethoven that I also embrace. You know, that's the great thing about music 
it's you know it's like Stravinsky said I I never um, understood a bar of music in my life but I sure did feel it. And that theory is feeding a movement to help draw younger audiences to the symphony by blending classical with a commercial pop sound. We do have the, what I will call, courage to put out these sort of hybrid programs, you know. And certainly in my other orchestras, and along with the Rhode Island Philharmonic, one of the initiatives is to try to reach as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And if that's through a John Williams score, great. If that's through... Um, a Danny Elfman score, if that's through Lady Gaga, and we also, maybe they'll hear something more classical on the program. It's exposure to music, I think. Everybody loves classical music, but they just don't know it yet, you know? And that certainly was the case with myself. I grew up to listening to film scores and popular music of the day, and, and, and uh, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Ennio Morricone, all of these folks. Then I got, that was a gateway into Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart, and I thought, wow, these are the, the real masters. Quinn admits he does get some pushback from classical music purists who prefer a traditional program. All the time. But I will tell you, it is the minority. You know, my programming is fairly controversial um, because we're blending multiple genres and we are now trying to reach the most amount of folks we can. Um, you know, but this has been going, around, going on, Pamela, for decades. Bernstein did this with his Young People's mm -hmm, Concerts mm -hmm. and would, you know, break down the chords of a Beatles tune and then relate that to Stravinsky, you know. And so I think the way we approach it now has changed, not the actual content. We're still trying to do the same thing, blend genres and reach a lot of people. But now we're doing it through the music of the day. At the end of the day, Quinn welcomes opportunities to perform on popular TV shows. He's appeared on The Voice and Glee and recorded with stars like Jennifer Hudson. But Quinn's favorite role is as a classical conductor. Currently, he leads the Owensboro Symphony in Kentucky and the Venice Symphony in Florida. But you know, that's my drug. That's my, uh, I don't have too many vices, but, but for me, that's what I love and that's what keeps me coming back to music. So you can't always get what you want sometimes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the next Rhode Island Philharmonic Pops concert on September 17th at Slater Park in Pawtucket. That's our broadcast for this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.